Well, a couple of things by way of uh, introduction this morning. First, uh, and I don't say this lightly, it really is, uh, it feels a profound honor to be back in the place in which I grew up. I spoke with a friend of mine, Glenn K. Ryan, outside before the service started, and we just noted how much of the, the cloth and the fabric of my faith was stitched in this place. And I don't speak in many places anymore, um, but when it's an opportunity to be here, there, there's something about it that is just an automatic yes, and it's proven in the fact that you get a kiss from Sonia Truce before you walk up in front, so, <laughs> for which I'm very grateful. Uh, secondly, I, I tend to talk fast. Those of you who heard, uh, heard me speak know that. Uh, there's a lot to cover this morning, and I have a wee bit of coffee in me, so uh, I understand they eye-tape it, or eye-record it, or eye-tune it, or whatever they do and with eyes these days, and so whatever you miss, uh, feel free to go back and, uh, and listen again. And uh, the third thing is that we may touch on just a few sort of heretical ideas here and there in the sermon, and I would invite you to address all of your complaints and rebukes and comments of dismay to carol.miller at wisettafreechurch.org. I'm sure he'd love to hear them, would he not? Yes, all right. Well, uh, Kevin and I talked a little bit uh, about just uh, staying within the flow of where you've been this morning, and my understanding is you've been in Micah. And I think, as you know, Micah, like all of the Old Testament prophets, is speaking on behalf of God to the kings of Israel and to the people of Israel. And during this time, the people have become increasingly evil as they have worshipped false gods. And with their great wealth, they've refused to take care of the widows and the poor and the sick among them. So these prophets like Micah are raised up from among the common people from time to time uh, to, to warn the people uh, that the judgment of God is coming if they don't repent of their ways. So by the time of Micah, that judgment is drawing near. Within 150 years, King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army would sack Jerusalem and take all of the golden artifacts from the temple and leave the city in such rubble that when Nehemiah would return many years later and try to ride through the city on his donkey, he writes about the fact that he can't even navigate the first steps into the city. It is so utterly destroyed. And Micah, of course, warns the nation all throughout his letter that this judgment is coming. And this judgment is real, it's severe, and it comprises most of Micah chapters 1 through 3. And I'm really glad that Kevin got to deal with all of the judgment chapters. The judgment also appears in chapter 4. We don't have time to deal with that section of the text this morning. Instead, we're going to land on the first two verses of chapter 4 in Micah. And the reason why we're going to do that is that something new and something different is happening in Micah's prophecy at this moment. For in this time, after all of this warning and all of this judgment that is coming, suddenly there appears this, this wonderful promise that a restoration is coming. A new kind of kingdom is on the way. And a new ruler will appear. So what we're going to do in looking at these verses is first read them and then walk through them a bit and consider the implications. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I think we're going to put it up here on the screen as well. But Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 
But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord into the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his path, and the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, these two verses, and the fact we're going to focus on them this morning, are going to prove to be what I would consider cosmic game changers. God himself has made himself accessible to the people. And he instructs them himself. When we consider this for a moment, we may find that this unbelievable fact not only shapes the people for whom it was written, but also even shapes the reality for our journeys of faith some 2,700 years after this prophecy was written. And so what I want to do this morning is take some time to look at a couple of things, what it means to be taught by God himself. We'll look through that as we do the text, but more specifically the implications of this text for the core of our own faith journeys. And without giving away the punchline just yet about this, I think that what we'll find is based on what we read here in Micah, that our journey of faith is not first and foremost defined by the theological principles we hold, nor is it defined by the amount of biblical knowledge we retain. Those things are important and they have their place. But the prophecy of Micah reveals that above all else, the journey of faith is comprised of God's law being written on the hearts of men and women who follow him. That's like the heretical bit. That's the stuff you can write to Carol. Read that again. Our journey of faith is not first and foremost defined by the theological principles that we hold, nor the amount of biblical knowledge that we have. Things are important and they have their place. But the prophecy of Micah reveals that above all else, the journey of faith is comprised of God's law being written on the hearts of men and women who choose to follow him. Now, before we can deal with some of the implications of that or further with that statement, there's a bit of exegetical or Bible interpretation work we need to do on these passages. So we'll roll through this in in about 10 minutes or so and uh, deal with verse 1 and then verse 2. But in terms of context, we need to understand that in these verses, Micah is making a messianic prophecy. He's referring to a long-awaited time in which the Messiah would come and establish his eternal kingdom amidst the people. It's what it means when Micah says, in these last days. That phrase, in these last days, is referring to the messianic kingdom, not to the end of time. The disciples knew well, and they often referred to the fact that we are now in the last days. The Messiah has come. We are in the last days. It is is the age of the Messiah that we're talking about here, not the end of the earth. And at that time, where the Messiah would reign would be from the highest mountain in the tallest part of the city. And on that mountain, there would be a temple in which God would dwell. Now, again, what we need to understand here is that prophecy is one of the categories of Scripture that has its own set of rules of interpretation. 
Okay? So when we have this picture in our mind's eye of this mountain uh, on which the temple of the Lord would come and would dwell and the Messiah would come and reign, uh, what we're talking about here is a symbolic image. There are many different categories of scripture. And prophecy functions a lot like poetry does, for example, in that we don't interpret poetry literally, we think about it symbolically. So there's this verse in Song of Solomon, for example, which is poetry, about how your lips, my bride, are as sweet as nectar or something like that, right? You know, you love Song of Solomon. And, and we sort of intuitively understand from that that the woman's lips in this passage are not actually like some sort of flower bed or haven for bees. It just talks about the sweetness of the nectar uh, and, and the sweetness of her taste on his lips, in Old Testament prophecy is similar as a literary category. When Micah talks about a temple on the highest mountain, for example, he's not talking about an actual temple on an actual mountain that would be set up somewhere in central Jerusalem. No, he's constructing an image. And it's an image of superiority of the kind of temple that would be brought into play. It was a very common notion in early Mediterranean religions that they would try to construct their temples to the gods uh, on the highest part of the mountain to demonstrate superiority. It's, it's part of where we get that Mount Olympus concept from, right, in Greek religion, that they're up in this very tall mountain. Well, that's what he's doing. And in suggesting this image then, in verse 1, Micah is saying that there is a coming kingdom of God as made manifest in the Messiah, that would represent the final age in which all the dominions of the men and gods of this earth would ultimately come under its power, and it'll be exalted above all those hills. So that's why 1 Corinthians says that Jesus must reign until all things are put under his feet. It's why he uses the mustard seed parable to describe the onset of the kingdom of God as being the, the small thing that eventually grow into this massive mustard tree uh, that would encompass all corners of the earth. And it's also where we get that famous Christmas passage from Isaiah 9, in which we, we say around that time that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son has been given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne forever and ever. So the picture again from Micah verse 1 of chapter 4 is of a coming age in which the kingdom of God set up through the Messiah would begin to rule and reign over all of the kingdoms. Moving on to verse 2 we get to what is perhaps the most significant part of this section of Micah's prophecy. And it's the part around which we're going to center the rest of the sermon this morning. It's the fact that God, in his temple, is available to everyone. Anyone to come and learn of his ways. Now, I think it's hard to over-exaggerate how mind-blowing this part of Micah's prophecy would have been to the Israelites in this time in history. The idea that God would be accessible to you would have been downright crazy, if not outright heretical. Okay? Think if you can remember the story of the Israelites about how they wouldn't even write down the name of God for fear that, oh, I might be taking it in vain somehow, and so they would even skip some of the Hebrew characters, when they would write down the name of God for fear that that name would appear, they'd take it in vain and God would strike them dead. 
Or if you think of the story of Moses, when God invites him to see him, but not his face, and so Moses kind of hides behind this, this rock, and God walks by, and Moses sees his back, and that's it. And even from that, he's coming down from Sinai glowing from that experience. Or from these poor <laughs> Levitical priests, uh, who had to carry the Ark of the Covenant as they walked through the wanderings of the desert. And the Ark of the Covenant was this holy artifact of the presence of God. And, and if they even just stumbled when they were walking and, man, and just happened to touch the Ark of the Covenant, they just dropped dead on the spot. I mean, I'm sure there were stories of great uncles, you know, in your line that had <laughs> yeah, dropped dead in that. I think about the story, and it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture, when God allowed the Philistines to capture the Ark of the Covenant for a period of time. And they're like, great! And they take the Ark, and, and it goes to, like, the city of Ashdod or something. And, and they get the Ark there, and they're so excited about their victory. And then all of a sudden, the city is struck with plagues and boils. So they're like, well, we don't want this thing. And they, they pass it up to the next Philistine city, and the next one. And each city is being struck by boils. And finally, the Philistines have had enough, and they sort of pack it full of gifts and send it back to the Israelites. That's enough of this. Think about when Solomon built his temple. And he prayed his prayer of dedication. And the Shekinah glory of God filled the inner chamber of the Holy of Holies. And in that moment, they brought in the Ark of the Covenant and some of the other main artifacts of Israel's history. And God himself dwelt among his people in the temple. But nobody had access to him. That, that, that chamber, that Holy of Holies, was separated not just from the priests, but the entire community by this incredibly tall and thick veil. And, and by veil, you need to think in terms of Persian carpet as opposed to like a translucent bridal veil. There was no access there save one time per year in which the high priest of the nation would offer the sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people's sin. And he would have to walk in and sacrifice the lamb for that. <laughs> and I love the stories of this because uh, what they did is that they actually tied bells around the waist of the, of the high priest before he went in. Because if he accidentally looked at the presence of God, he would drop dead right there. And so what they did is they tied the bells there and they knew that if the, you know, if the priest is conducting the sacrifice... If he accidentally looked up and fell dead, the bells would jingle, they would know, and they would pull him out of the temple. And it just sort of makes me wonder, I mean, how many priests kind of went walking in and died and died? I mean, how many piled up before they rigged up this system, right? So, anyway. The point is that the, the context of this passage is that Micah is saying that a time is coming in which the people will be able to access God directly and learn of his ways. It's mind-blowing to them. But it happened. It happened when Jesus died. A cosmic shift took place. Darkness covered the land and an earthquake hit. And the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the presence of God ultimately exploded out among the people at Pentecost in the form of his spirit because Jesus had offered the perfect sacrifice of atonement, being both the high priest atoner and the sacrificial lamb who was slain. He was both. He offered both. And when that perfect sacrifice was offered, a cosmic shift in the universe took place. The temple veil was torn in two 
and got exploded out among the people to the point that Paul makes this ludicrous statement that we are now all temples of the Holy Spirit. There's only one way that works. It's because of the perfect and perpetual sacrifice of the king. So the picture we have then is that in the days when the Messiah comes, he will usher in this eternal kingdom that will rule over and over and over all of the other kingdoms of this earth until he reigns and everything is under his feet. And the people will learn during that time from God himself. Jeremiah says it this way, In those days I will put my law in their inward part, and I will write my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man or his neighbor or every man and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I have forgiven their iniquity, and I know their sin no more. And Hebrews says, This is the covenant I will make. I will put my law into their hearts, and onto their minds I will write them. I love that. For not only will God teach us himself, but we don't have to take notes. He's going to write it in our hearts. It becomes, I think, as the worship director was saying this morning, it's part of the fabric of our being. It becomes part of the reality of how we live. Not a bunch of commands we need to try to do. I'll say more about that in a minute. Okay, with all of that said then, by way of some of the exegetical work, going back to the implications for a moment, I just want to walk through some of that. There's probably many implications of this, obviously. But what I want to at least submit for your consideration this morning is that Micah's prophecy teaches us that our faith is not constituted primarily by the theology that we believe or the amount of biblical knowledge that we have, but by the law of God being written on our hearts. So, addressing that out just a little bit more, I do want to say a couple things about that. Uh, what I mean by this idea of that our faith is not defined primarily by the theology we believe, I find it interesting that in many of the Christian circles in which I run, we do tend to define sort of who is in or who is out by the theology that they believe, right? And so we have all of these sort of theological doctrinal ideas, you know, about post-millennialism rapture, which, you know, I'm not even sure what all that means, and, and, uh, and the inerrancy of Scripture, and, and uh, the sovereignty of God. And, and we like to, to say, you know, you need to, to buy into these articles of faith. I have an article from the Bethel newspaper this last week, uh, and there's a headline here. It says, Prof's Doctrinal Differences, all right? And then the little sort of tagline is, does requiring faculty to agree to Bethel's affirmation of faith ensure that professors are Christian enough? <laughs> it's kind of like being pregnant enough, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's like either you sort of are or you aren't. I don't know how you become Christian enough. But uh, interesting that there's the debate. I, I, you know, back in Bethel's history, uh, and I love Bethel, love it. And so it's fun to even talk about some of these things. But maybe about 10 years ago, that there's this huge theological debate between the Calvinists, you know, on one side and the Armenians on the other. And, you know, the Calvinists emphasize the sovereignty of God and we have no choice and we're predestined for heaven or hell. And the Armenians are like, no, we have plenty of choice. And, uh, you know, and they just argue back and forth. And it got to the point on Bethel's campus that literally if you walked into the cafeteria, you would walk in and where you sat in the cafeteria depended on whether or not you were a Calvinist or an Armenian. 
The cafeteria was divided that way, and that always sort of made me laugh, and I thought, well, I mean, the Calvinists never really had any choice about where they're going to sit anyway, right? <laughs> and the Armenians thought they did, but they weren't going to sit with the Calvinists, so they didn't have choice either. So, anyway. One of the potential problems with a theologically based faith, and understand I love theology, love it. Nothing better for me to sit around in a coffee shop, or if can't say that out loud, but I will. If I was in Scotland, maybe I would sit with C.S. Lewis in a pub, hypothetically, <laughs> and talk theology. Love it. Love it. But that said, there's something about just even the method of theology that leaves us wanting a bit in the sense that we're finite creatures. We're subject to things like time and space and cause and effect and the limitations of a language where we try to articulate with symbols and letters. And in doing that, we can tend to think that we can somehow distill an infinite God into a nice little theological box. The method of theology is difficult when you think of finite creatures trying to grasp an infinite God. I think back to my systematic theology days at Bethel Seminary, and I had a professor there. He was probably in his mid-30s. I think he had a double doctorate or something from Princeton and Oxford. I mean, (laughs) he was way more of his brain than I ever will. And he was a brilliant man could articulate all sorts of amazing things about theology. And at the end of the day, in the end of class, he would often say, you know what, I love the study of this, but you just need to know that my theology is written in pencil because it's subject to change. And I love the pursuit of my Abba, of my Father. And I believe it's a profound act of worship, he would say, to pursue God in theological discourse and discussion. But at the end of the day, when our heads hit the pillow, I think we end our day leaning into the trust of God as opposed to the understanding of God. It's a profound idea. As far as knowledge and a Bible-based faith, just going through that quickly, I find, in, again, in many Christian circles, we like to define ourselves by how much Bible knowledge we have. And again, there's a few problems associated with that. One is that whole head-heart split thing that goes on. And uh, I just think of a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is one of the most profound biblical scholars of our age at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and he knows more scripture than probably all of us put together. He's sort of a walking Awanas program. And, uh, and, he, uh, and his conclusions are that uh, after all of his study of scripture, he is now an avowed agnostic, if not outright atheist. There's a little disconnect between the head and the heart. I think about the Pharisees' extensive knowledge of the Torah. Wide swaths of the Old Testament they had memorized. And yet that knowledge led them to puffiness and to use that knowledge to beat it over the head of the people who were even trying to get into the kingdom of God. And I look back on this story I'm about to tell and think, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but it happened. Uh, One more story on this. I I did some interim pastor work in in a church up in the northern part of the metro area. And they were in between pastors and were looking for their new pastor. And I was sitting on their board and helping them consult a bit. And, and the, these men said, you know, whatever else we're going to do or be as a church, we are going to have our lives and our decisions governed by the word. It was, it was a great thought. And looking back again, I can't believe I said this, but I just looked at him and said, I think that's great. But is the name of your next pastor found in the word? Because if not, how are you going to determine who God has for this season of time in your church? What does it mean to walk in faith, 
to be with God and to be governed by the Word. Well, given this, let me make sure I'm clear this morning as we move to the final parts of the sermon. I love theology. I love the Bible. I've said that I teach the Bible at Bethel. I hope to do that till I die. And I love sitting around and talking theology. But given Micah's messianic prophecy and its fulfillment, can we at least wonder about what is the central core or constitution of our faith journey? Well, what I'd like to sit, submit for you this morning is that there's just something about the law of God that's being written on our hearts. And I wonder what that is. And I thought about that this week in preparation. And I think the answer to that question is found in a very familiar passage of Scripture. It happens in a time when a teacher of the law is coming to Jesus and says, Rabbi or teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You probably know the answer to the story. Jesus turns to them and he says, here's the deal, guys. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And understand this. Everything that's been written in the law, every instruction I have ever given, everything that I have said or done in all of the words I have given the prophets, everything hangs on that. Love the Lord your God The law and the prophets hang on that. The instructions of the Lord make no sense without the context of love. Whatever else his instructions might be, whatever else is in the constitution of the law, however else we are to carry ourselves as believers, whatever we believe theologically, whatever we understand about the kingdom of God, however else we view creation around us, it's through the eyes of love. I think about the example of Jesus on the cross. And when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My guess, and I don't know this, but my guess is he wasn't thinking, hmm, theologically, even though it's killing me, because, I mean, they've jammed my side with a spear, and they've, you know, put a bunch of thorns on my head, and they've lashed my back with this whip, and my body's broken, and they're mocking me. They're killing me. But theologically, I'm supposed to forgive them, so I will. Or, mm, you know, I, I know a lot about the word of me, because <laughs> you know, I'm God, the word of God, and, and I know I'm supposed to, to forgive him, even though I can't stand him. I wonder if somehow he just still, in the midst of all of that, still saw him all rightly. And saw his beautiful creation doing what they were doing. He said, oh, Father, forgive him, for they know not what they do. Makes me wonder what it would be like if we, as the people of faith, Spend time individually and corporately through our study of uh, scripture and theology, through our prayer and our conversations, in our small groups and our sermons, in our conferences and our quiet times, and in our worship, began to have, in increasing fashion, this law of God written on our hearts, infusing everything we do. I don't know what pictures you get around that. I will close this morning with some of the pictures that just came in in my mind this week. <laughs> you may agree with them, you may not. And you may have different pictures. But these are some of the ones that came into my mind around this law that we have access to now that can be written in our hearts in increasing fashion so we don't have to try to drum it up and fake it. Oh, I can't stand it, but i got to love them. But we can actually be inhabited by love. Some of the pictures I got included these. I wonder if the marriages of the people of God 
would be marked by authentic delight and joy with the other. Not without intense seasons of pain and turmoil and heartache, all marriages face this, everyone. But maybe with grace marking those seasons and redemption. What could we share with the world if we demonstrated that the fairy tale of happily ever after is not defined by a lack of difficulty, but rather in the face of that difficulty, there are two people living in mutually submissive devotion to one another, discovering the transcendent love of the kingdom, leading to ever-increasing years of joy and delight as the law of love is being written on their hearts. I wonder if that kind of marriage would be more compelling to the world than trying to simply defend its constitutionality. Not that we shouldn't do that. But I wonder if we'd be missing something. I wonder if the law of love spread through the leadership in the Christian community, I'll put myself in this category right now, that maybe we as Christian leaders would begin to say no to commodifying people in the pews into giving units and stop worrying about counting heads and start to find, and stop defining success by the size of the church, but instead asking ourselves week in and week out, do I truly love the people? Does my heart break on their behalf when they're in pain? Do I take joy in their joy? Do I desire to defend them and guard their journeys as a sacred trust? For even though they are my equal, they are in my care, and I will love them. I wonder if this law spread through us, and now I put myself here again in the Christian community itself that maybe we would just begin to say no to the destructive power of gossip and instead seek to honor one another and our pastors. And when legitimate disputes arise, and they will, it's part of doing life together, but we seek to handle them directly with love and care. I think I could unfold myself in a place like that and trust other people and learn to just be, knowing that they had my best interests at heart. What if our worship and song arose out of a heart of love for our Father? What if our prayers were defined that way? What if our hearts broke when we saw others on the streets who were hurting? What if I really could bless those who curse me? What if I really could pray for those who persecute me and love those who hate me? It sounds otherworldly. What if my heart authentically jumped when I saw you every Sunday morning? And I couldn't wait to participate with you as my brother or sister, at the communion table of our fellowship? What if the wisdom of our elders was valued? And what if our elders turned around and knelt down with our children? Love's an amazing thing. They might actually know we are Christians by our love. I think then we might become a city of light, a light that shines in the darkness of this world. Darkness that theology cannot quench. Darkness that no amount of biblical knowledge can chase away. But when the love of the kingdom of God and the Messiah who brought it in and hung on a cross to demonstrate this for us comes into play, changes everything. So I close with this this morning. And Brian and I didn't plan this, but he read it during his announcements. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everybody who loves is born of God and knows God. But beware, he that does not love 
no matter the amount of theological sophistication or biblical articulation, he that does not love does not know God. For God is love.